Welcome to the Land Party Lawyers Podcast, the podcast that features two lawyers tackling issues at the intersection of video games, law, and business. My name is Steve Blickensdurfer, and with me is my co-host, Nick Brown. Hello. And through debate, discussion, and interviews, our episodes explore issues facing everyone in the fast-developing video game industry. Connect with us on our social media, including Instagram, or on our webpage, landpartylawyers.com. Nick, on today's episode, we'll be talking about esports, specifically the legal and practical implications of investing in esports, but you already knew that. We've invited our colleague uh, Adam Smith to join us and discuss some of these issues. He is a venture investor, advisor, and a former in-house lawyer with considerable expertise in the tech space with investing, uh, with startups, and uh, primarily based out of our Miami office here. Uh, during our interview, we're going to be going over a couple of scenarios. We thought it best to to illustrate some of the points we'll be talking about, to go through some case studies. So we'll be going through that with Adam. But first, Nick, let's get started. What do we mean when we're talking about esports? What What is esports? Well, esports uh, means different things to different people, but right now it essentially means it's competitive gaming um, at a professional level. Usually it involves uh, tournaments uh, that are either uh, public or private, um, and they have a specific goal like narrowing the the pool of competitors down either either in teams or individual competitors down to produce a final champion. Uh, some people, there are some games that really are con more conducive to esports than others because they have uh, very, you know, they're very well made. They have very few bugs and glitches, and they're very predictable in terms of uh, how the mechanics work. Um, and certain games have really taken off in the esports scene. Some really popular genres for esports are MOBAs, uh, which is short for Mobile Online Battle Arena, and that's your League of Legends and your uh, Dotas and your Hearthstone, or not Hearthstone, your Heroes of the Storm. Uh, there's also a bunch of uh, esports that take place with uh, competitive shooters, first-person shooters like uh, Counter-Strike uh, Global Offensive. And you also see my personal favorite are, are RTS games like StarCraft II, uh, where you command a whole battle from a top-down view. And uh, you really like of, you really like Roller Coaster Tycoon. That's that's your real-time strategy game. It's yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I've never been able to get that my, my, you know my Roller Coaster Tycoon skill to a competitive level. But, I, I can know, just I'm see everybody in your in your park just throwing up all the time. <laughs> with those green faces. All right. Well, you're not invited. Well, um, well one thing I wanted to ask you about this, because we think of esports, you think of competitions, uh, official r rules and regulations. But what's to say me setting up a LAN party, which is a local area network for those that don't know, uh, where all computers are connected and, you know, I throw $50 down. Is that an esports competition? I mean, where's the line? I mean, technically, that's a competition. I don't know how many people would show up to claim your $50 prize, but uh, you know, money. any kind of competitive gaming is technically an eSport. Yeah, it would be the difference between you know playing a pickup game of basketball and going to an NBA game, I suppose. Well, one, one thing my, I think my question highlights is that this is such a, an amorphous term, perhaps, that eSports to you isn't necessarily the same as eSports to me. I don't know if there's a general consensus other than a, a, com a competitive level of video games. Um, so anyway, I'm just putting that, put a pin in that, Nick. We'll, we'll, we'll probably hit that a little later in the podcast as we talk about esports. So, okay. Well, uh, philosophy aside, uh, as an industry, we can be 
certain that esports is just really blowing up. Nuzu says that uh, by 2020, it's going to be a $2.4 billion industry by revenue. Goldman Sachs recently did a report back in October on esports. It's called, uh, I believe it's called Esports uh, Hits the, the Big Leagues. And they estimated that right in 2018, esports have 167 million monthly audience. But by uh, 2022, it's going to be a 276 million monthly audience, which would be on par with the NFL. Right now, uh, they estimate that the combined YouTube and Twitch audience is bigger than the combined audiences of HBO, Netflix, and ESPN. So this is no small phenomenon. It's attracting a ton of attention. And it's also seeing a lot of high-profile investments. That's that, you know, with attention and media coverage and popularity follows high profile investments. And we've been seeing a ton. You, you can't, you know, I, I don't know what your world is like, but in my world, it seems I don't go more than a couple of days without seeing some big new investor stepping into the esports stage. You've got entertainers like traditional entertainers, uh, like the musician Drake, the actor Ashton Kutcher, uh, multi talented J Lo. Yeah. Will Smith is in it, and uh, Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Diddy, uh, I don't know what he goes by now. I sometimes call him Dr. Jinx because I'm an It's Always Sunny fan, uh, but he's, he's, he's dipped his toe into the pool as well. Uh, in addition, traditional sports athletes have jumped in too. Uh, Stephen Curry, Shaq, A-Rod. Rick Fox probably started this whole thing with Echo Fox. Maybe. There you go. L.A. Laker fans out there. Uh, Shaq has invested. A-Rod has invested. Michael Jordan. Uh, and also other traditional sports folks that, that aren't athletes themselves, like Mark Cuban and Jerry Jones have gotten into it. So there's a whole bunch of high-profile prof investments being made into esports right now, and we think it's only going to take off even further. And there have even been companies that have entered the, you know, made public offerings, and, and you can buy stocks in these companies. One, one such company, actually the first such esports company is Super League Gaming which had a $25 million IPO earlier this year, um, which- That's a lot of money. That's a lot. And uh, it was found, a 2015 company, which really their MO is they hold uh, local competitions, arguably eSport competitions in local areas, local you know movie theaters or, or whatnot. And, it's definitely uh, esports competitions. Yeah, so they work with uh, you know individuals to grow the, the 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 competition of of video games and esports, and they work with brands to come in to sponsor these events. Like uh, Logitech, I think is one one of their current sponsors, and um, you know that brand gets an exposure to all these players, and maybe they use the brands. I don't know, but um, interesting model. You know, I think the biggest news is just that it was an esports company that had you know. Uh, an IPO of, of that size and magnitude. Yeah, I understand that the share value has gone down a bit since their IPO. Um, and, you know, that that's really not too shocking. The, the IPO market for tech companies overall um, can be volatile, and there's been some economic and trade instability in the past few months that may have contributed to that as well. But uh, the bottom line is a lot of people are watching Super League to see how it goes and to decide if they want to jump in themselves and invest further into the esports scene. Yeah, and it does show you though, there is there is just a tremendous appetite for investment in this space. Um, you know, you, you rattled off a bunch of high profile A-list celebrity names, but there are also a lot of high profile A-list investor companies, investment companies 
that are investing in this space behind a lot of these artists, which is notable in and of itself. Yeah, and maybe maybe the best example of that is the Overwatch League, uh, which is a uh, you know put on by Blizzard. It's a professional esports league for a game made by Activision Blizzard called Overwatch. And the Overwatch League follows the model of traditional American professional sports teams. You'll remember we talked about this a little bit on the floor of Ultimate Gamer when we talked to Arda Ocal. Who has a great podcast on esports, by the way, the Business of Esports podcast. Check it out. It's a really good one if you're just interested in the business side of esports. Agreed. No, just, just a shameless plug right there. <laughs> so the Overwatch League... Um, just like traditional American professional sports teams, they have permanent city-based teams like the San Francisco Shock or the Toronto Defiant. And the teams, just like traditional sports like football or baseball, they're privately owned. And some are owned by, in fact, owners of traditional sports teams like the Kraft Group, who's affiliated with the New England Patriots, Patriots owner, Robert Kraft. Uh, they have regular seasons and playoffs like traditional sports. Um, the games are played live and broadcast online and, TV, and on TV. Uh, fun fact, uh, Blizzard actually is using the old NBC studio where Johnny Carson's Tonight Show was recorded. Uh, they converted it into a, an, an arena for this purpose. It's also a misconception about these competitions like the Overwatch League. There are actually players in the physical stadium. They're not like playing at home and you're seeing it at a random location where everybody gathers. You have literally two teams that are up on the stage or wherever, and they're they're sitting there at a computer and you're watching their screen and the casters casting on top of it. So it's like a, it's an actual event. And I, I say that because I've had a number of questions about the layout and format of these events and whether there's anybody actually there. And there definitely are. So you probably have many people on this listening to this have probably seen Overwatch on TV, which is another way through which these some of these uh, leagues are being um, esport competitions are being published, published, which is pretty neat to see. Yeah, um, the grand finals last year sold out New York's Barclays Center, and it was also just like you said, it was broadcast on ESPN. So you may have been just you know clicking through the channels, and you may be able to see someone playing Overwatch, which is pretty cool. It, it's actually because of the success of the Overwatch League that we have another uh, esport competition. Uh, another example of how this works is. The NBA's partnership with Take Two, a uh, large game publisher, uh, to form the basketball esports league, the NBA 2K League. Right. And so this is uh, a different, instead of just everything being tied to Blizzard's IP, in this instance, you have a traditional sports based team like the Knicks uh, Gaming or Cavs with their Cavs Legion GC. Um, putting out these there there are these teams and they they draft these players which is pretty neat uh just like you draft a, a basketball player you could trade players uh across teams so this began actually just last year 2018 with 17 franchises represented and now they're in their second season and the goal is to have all the franchises represented and it's just uh it seems like there's a, a lot of the funding that came for this is from the team ownership where as compared to the other Overwatch League, which is maybe more uh, private equity in a tradition with, you know, the crafts of the world. So, And I think there's similar moves being made in uh, NHL, too. They also have a, a parallel kind of esports league that, yeah. uh, that that is, you know, 
affiliated with some of the uh, the actual teams, the the traditional teams. And we're only going to see more of this over time in in perhaps baseball and in other traditional sports formats. And you're going to see other just standalone esport competitions. We didn't go into Fortnite is currently under undergoing its world championships right now, and you've got CS:GO is another good one. But we could go on. There's lots of examples. We just chose to talk about those. Um, but let's let's shift gears right now. That's because those are important, Nick. That's why we talked about those. They are important. <laughs> uh, we're going to shift gears now and, and, and introduce Adam back. Uh, and we're pleased to have him with us. Uh, again, from our Miami office, he works with a lot of startups. And uh, he's also plugged in the gaming industry and its unique issues. So I think it's it, it, we thought it was best to best way to showcase the issues here would be to talk about um, some specific examples uh, to help illustrate how businesses are getting into the game, quote unquote, of esports. You like my pun there? Yeah, it was great. Nick, why don't you start us off? Adam, thank you for joining us. We're really pleased to have you. Great to be here. Awesome. So, um, first example I can think of um, would be the traditional startup, Adam, since you have experience with startups looking to get into esports. Um, you imagine this could be anything, but one that came to mind is kind of something that maybe we could talk about, like an analytics company. So I've seen some of these companies that they'll they'll measure or monitor your eye movements and your your clicks per second or minute, and uh, your track your I guess your analytics as you're playing a game. Um, you have a tech startup with with that business model in mind. Uh, could you maybe explain some of wh what advice you would give to a business like that as it relates to, you know, esports and investment purposes? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, one of the things that you you see, especially when you have a growth area like this, is these areas popping up that are ancillary, right? So you're not necessarily building uh, a game, but you're building either analytics or payment systems or other other systems that add to the experience for the users, right? And so in the case of this analytics example that you gave, um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, with startups, you typically, you don't have any money, right? And so... That's a problem. That's always an issue. And in the case of, because we're using this example, um, one thing you have to think about is what are you analyzing and what sort of information um, are you going to have? Because there are, where there normally aren't regulatory issues, um, here there might be because you're going to be collecting information about the users of this particular gaming system. So you need to understand uh, what day one you need to know um, and, and what are the barriers to, to entry for uh, getting into that sort of uh, service. So I, I think the first thing is to, it sounds great to do analytics for video games, um, but as a startup, when you get into a, a potentially regulated industry, um, or area, I should say, um, it gets kind of difficult. So one of the first things I would want to do is understand what is the information that they're analyzing from these games? What are the um, what are the platforms that they're going to be providing this service to? Is it, um, as you guys discussed, there's franchises now, just like the NFL. There's the Overwatch League. And then there's also individual games that are, that are out there either for mobile or otherwise that are not specifically uh, tied to leagues. And what are the rights that you need to have to be able to collect this information? Who are you contracting with? Um, as a startup, you're going to be providing useful information, uh, but who owns that information, right? And, and are they able to provide it to you, or is it owned by somebody else? I mean, those are just, you know, real right. quick off the top of my head. I, I can imagine in the esports, in the digital context, when you have these startups, uh, the IP is super important. Protecting your IP, 
uh, and 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 your your rights. Uh, you obviously have startups sometimes can struggle to get, get that stuff in order because it's expensive sometimes to to file patents or copyrights or or whatnot. Uh, but that is when when you're dealing with digital assets, it's super important to protect those. I'd imagine. And that'd be part of the conversation is, is what kind of digital product are you creating and how best to protect it. Right. Because like we, like we said, you, you don't have a lot of money. So you're going to try to figure out either what you need to do to position yourself for investment or what you need to do to, fit, to position yourself to, to start generating revenue as quickly as possible. In the case of an analytics company, the important – my suspicion is it would be about um, the games – that you are providing this information to, uh, to be able to provide advertising information to advertisers and, and those that would want to know who's playing the game, how often they're playing it, um, and a variety of other informational um, things about the, the players. So that's where you, ne- you need to be able to um, accurately provide data about specifically what you're able to provide because you might find that you can't do it for one platform when you can do it for another. Um, there's some technical limitations in doing that sort of specific. And then we're into the weeds on analytics, but right. um, there, there are... Um, what, what about the, the idea that there's just so much buzz around something, right? And in this co- case, esports, if, 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 if this particular business owner went into a room and pitched, I've got an esports analytics company, and the, all the people in the room just had to hear that, and, and they're um, super excited to invest. I guess are there concerns about with buzz and excitement and a lot of money, uh, there should be some caution and, and maybe, I guess I'm trying to flesh out what are some of the legal or practical implications of being in such a hot space and, and you've got a startup, you've got a great idea about the influx of money, which could be easy to get, easier than, than perhaps in another context, uh, does that create any concerns? I would say it used to, but it's less so now because we just discussed we have these top-tier investors making investments in the space. So there's going to be less concern about whether or not uh, this information, for example, this analytics that you're providing here is going to be useful. Uh, so you sort of – there's this initial hurdle of, you know, this is – I spent a lot of time with the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency team here. And so that's a nascent area, right? And so there's still skepticism. With gaming – there may be skepticism still maybe more in the United States than in Asia about, you know, are, are thousands, tens of thousands of people going to be watching games? We, we know that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. other than the Overwatch, Overwatch League on TV, maybe you don't get a lot of um, just general population exposure to these things. But I think you're in a better position today, certainly, than you were three or five years ago, walking in a room uh, and talking about services you're providing uh, as a startup to the gaming industry or to a particular game or to one of these franchises or to a league, because that data is vitally important to them because they're also trying to gain customers and raise money. Great. And there there could be, like, legal landscape changes, right? Like, we, you know, yes, gaming is a little more... Um, established now than it was a few years ago and and maybe more so than than blockchain right now but for example you know there's a u.s senator that just announced that he's planning on regulating uh loot boxes and microtransactions and so you know it would be a a real bummer to have just put a bunch of money investing into some loot box company only to hear this uh you know legal change that is coming it could rip the rug out from under you i'd imagine that would be part of the due diligence you'd want to do before getting in, in, involved like that and putting laying down your money, right? Yeah, I mean, look, if we, we can we can flip to the investor view on this stuff um, a little bit. So certainly there are um, just I can think of two things that are just different about games, and that is 
kids play them. So you have people under 12 and you have people under 18 um, playing these games and providing personal information, communicating, and uh, in some cases, either receiving prizes or earning prizes and, and making payments um, on the system. And so that implicates a number of different regulatory um, areas, right? Because you're trying to protect children, you're trying to regulate payments, you're trying to manage uh, information that you're collecting. So all of those things need to be understood. Certainly from an investor perspective, uh, you would need to know what this particular game, maybe, maybe it's a, a, a game, I, I'll switch to, to being an investor in perhaps a, a game that's being developed, what they're doing to uh, control the information and protect it. If it's uh, looking at a team or a league, there's a whole host of other issues uh, that, that haven't even been addressed yet, but it's... Um, so, so let's switch gears there, because that's the next example that I was going to try to help us focus on, which is um, investing in the esports team uh, and, and in the esports e infrastructure that surrounds the team. Uh, what are some of the unique considerations there, and can we analyze it in, in the context of something traditional like investing in a traditional sports team? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's where you start, and then it and then it digresses a little, and you have to kind of find your way, right? I mean, so the first thing we know is that we've discussed, uh, you know, especially folks like um, Jerry Jones or, or Mark Cuban who have invested, who are team owners. Um, that is a incredible signal to investors that people who know the sports space are now moving into esports and see incredible value there. So when you look at investing in teams, I think the first thing is to understand some basics. For example, a lot of teams are created around an en a corporate entity that owns several teams. Are you investing in one team? Are you investing in all the teams? Are you going to be able to diversify yourself so that maybe one team plays Overwatch and another plays League of Legends or, 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 what, or what have you? So the question is, are you investing in a particular game? Are you investing in a particular technology platform? Are right, you, because more often, more than any other, I guess, professional sporting competition is that this game could be here today and gone tomorrow versus baseball or whatever that'll last a number of years. <laughs> exactly. And HOTS is a classic example that we always return to, which is Blizzard uh, announcing suddenly uh, that it would withdraw its support from this, this game, which caused some eSport teams to basically fire their players and just regroup. Right. So is it going to be... after a, a bunch of people had... Uh, really made some real reliance significant investments, investments. exactly. On, you know, practicing and investing time and money, relationships into getting into this game, only to have the developer of the game say, you know, thank you for your interest, but right. we're not planning on on continuing to support this. At the, they're still supporting it, obviously, but not at the same level right. that they were when they were expecting it to go on to blow up as an esport. But that's where where I see it digress a little is where the NFL certainly the owners have. Uh, the control and the input on a variety of things. If you own a team in the Overwatch League, the question is, what input do you have with regard to the game and its features and, and the tournaments and, and what have you? And I, I don't know the answer to that question, but that's Probably certainly no. something. Yeah, and so that's <laughs> something as an investor you have to understand and, and try to diversify. So I see this as several different areas. You want to understand the corporate structure that you're investing in. You want to also understand the technology platform and game that's being focused on, multiple games, one game, what is the, is it a mobile game? Is it 
a game that it's only on PS4? Is it only on Xbox? Is it on both? Is it a PC game? Is it all three? Is it interoperable? What is it that you're investing in that this team uh, is playing and who controls it? Because as opposed to some traditional sports, this is a whole new world where there is a level of control. I mean, Frank, we just saw the Chinese government make a change to a game that millions of people were playing in China. So You're referring to PUBG porting over to China. Exactly. And I think, what is it called? Fre- uh, game of Friends or, yeah, or some, Peace some or something game, like yeah. that? Really they changed name. the <laughs> name. So, but, I mean, I, I use that as an example, but uh, Blizzard could do the same thing. It's right. their game. So well, th- th- You're right. because I, I think I remember hearing the other day the Tencent, their their value because that's the company behind that, that was bringing I think that was bringing PUBG into China, or or it might be something else I don't know but there was a company that was their their valuations was directly affected by a large market's holding up their rights to push a game through to the consuming public in that area right, right. being China and there's others actually just recently uh, banned Fortnite I think we might talk about government regulation of games in another episode in the future but it's definitely something I'm hearing you say that that if you're seeking to invest or you're a business in this space it needs to be uh, part of the due diligence that goes into whether or not something's viable right so you got the corporate structure you got the sort of the platform and, and the team and then and then the talent which initially starts off like you know, your typical talent um, in professional sports, right? And, and there's certainly um, a lot of established law, a lot of established contracts, a lot of agents that understand how this all works. Um, and it's very much like the, the standard entertainment industry because there are a lot of, with teams, as you can imagine, ancillary IP rights that go along with that, whether it's hoodies, hoodies T-shirts, yeah. hats. Those are not cheap What, what have you. <laughs> um, and, and the uh, talent having to do a certain number of hours in front of the press or whatever they might have in their contracts. This gets a little more interesting because you can play remotely. You can... Well, some people even question whether or not those houses are, are necessary when you can all and, just and play that's, remotely. And that's often in their contracts where they're providing them housing. And, and so you need to sort of understand what the team is doing and what the contracts with these um, employees who are the, the team members, um, what they say. And as, it, as a lawyer, what would you be looking at? Um, so I think I would want to understand how much of what that these individual players um, are doing, how much of it is controlled and what's owned by the team. So, for example, just to use a real uh, uh, traditional sports example, Steph Curry or Tom Brady aren't wearing GoPros during games, right? Um, clearly, that would be something that if they did, both the NBA and the NFL would have to approve and the team would approve and the team would get the revenue from whatever that was. But... You can go home and record streaming if you're a, a star player. Um, and the question mm-hmm. is, does the team own that stream, right? If you're playing right. for fun, if you're playing. So th- there's, there's a number of different aspects to this that are a, a little bit different than traditional sports. I and, would th- say. and that's and the, the friction between, I guess, the player and what they own. And what the team would own, especially in an area like esports where your star could rise pretty quickly, your brand could take off when you're streaming at home and you're doing your own thing. I mean, uh, TFU's lawsuit against uh, FaZe Clan is a classic example of when um, when things go south, when you've got someone who, who has uh, risen to fame on his own at the same time he joined a clan, and, and so there's kind of a direct correlation there. Um, and, and then it's then turning around eventually and suing his clan wh- for and alleging that they are acting as an imp- unlicensed talent agency. Um, 
it, it just shows you that the types of problems that if you're not preparing for them and and purposefully building these thoughts into your equation when you're developing the contracts, you St- have to. Streaming revenue, prize money, revenue created on Twitch, all of these things. And, and, and then what are the benchmarks? What are the performance characteristics? You know, how many touchdowns does someone have to score? We, we all know that. What, what is it when you're playing League of Legends, right? And and so that's a whole different thing. But but I think to emphasize for, for everyone listening, I suspect it's generally people that, that understand this, but this is serious. This is 100 million people watch the Super Bowl, 75 million people watch League of Legends uh, in the last championship. So this is real serious business. This is not um, something that we're waiting to grow. This is And sort not of a single Budweiser ad. <laughs> yeah, and so we, we, you, we, it's just going to, and the NFL has been around for a while. And so you can imagine over time um, that that's going to, in fact, I think you mentioned that there's, or one of you mentioned that there's a statistic that that is going to certainly surpass 100 million viewers um, over time. So this is um, really important um, for everyone to understand because it's going to. I mean, you don't want to invite problems, right? So if you wait too long to do something, as we're seeing with the loot box microtransaction scandal, I'm going to call it a scandal, which is... um, you know, the government might step in and do something about it. So if, if you're not doing something to, uh, I guess, if you're I- introducing, I guess, really oppressive terms within your organization, in this industry, or what have you, I don't know. If there's just, if, the, if it just smells bad, uh, people might take a look, take stock, especially now that it's just so much money on the line. Investors will be looking at this this FaZe Clan uh, lawsuit, I'm sure. People who are looking to invest they're going to be saying, okay, well, how does that situation compare with what you're asking me to invest in? Because then I don't want to invest in the other thing, perhaps. I don't know. The, the other thing that's unique, I think, to this space, uh, and, and I don't know if it's a legal issue or not, is that while we have international leagues, right? We, we have certainly North America. Um, we have baseball and, and basketball and hockey. This is a global phenomenon. This is this is people playing on teams, challenging each other on a global basis, like the Olympics. So, whether or not those multiple um, jurisdictions come into play here and in in affect what you even as an investor, what you're able to do with a team you invest in is also another interesting area that that obviously we need to to learn about more over time. But right. it's going to continue in a way that I think for traditional sports, there's a little bit of kind of you know, football is a U.S. sport. You know, so- soccer is, is right. more in Europe and South America that we play it here. It, there's there's less of that, I think, in this space, and that's why it's growing so fast. Totally. The uh, the next example I just wanted to switch gears to uh, is an investment in, in game development. So you've got uh, indie small-time game developers, and you've got the giant big box uh, game developers. And so I, I wanted to think about or wanted to talk to you about some of the uh, pain points or pressures or thoughts that an investor would would have to th- consider from a legal standpoint in investing in a game company. So w- what would some of those considerations be? So generally, they wouldn't be much different than uh, standard software development. Where it um, goes off and, and becomes a little more interesting is um, you, you need to understand when you're developing a game, where are your users going to play that game? And what is your ability to develop on that platform? And what IP rights do you need to have? What access rights do you need to have? 
whether it's from Microsoft or from Sony or from Apple, what is it that you need to make that game a reality and what are you going to need to do? What sort of revenue sharing are you going to be doing through the Apple Store? Um, developing um, games is just like developing any other software at the beginning. And then, and then it gets complicated um, quickly. But there are basic things like you might have developers across multiple jurisdictions um, who are um, subject to different laws, who are uh, sending in encrypted... Sometimes irreconcilable laws. Correct. Who are sending encryption, um, in encrypted packages back and forth, which can implicate certain U.S. laws because they're developing software and they're, they're sending um, information back and forth in, in a way that, that might create issues um, from a, a, a regulatory perspective. There's the standard things you have as far as remote workers, right? Um, and, and that's often what you see, although in gaming you typically have the teams closer uh, together. But um, I think as an investor, looking at investing in, in someone who says, hey, I'm going to, and most, the, most, just in my experience, it's, it's typically developers of mobile games right. um, that, that you see. Um, it is more about how they think, what, what is their revenue model? Right, and how are they going to project that revenue model into Apple, Android, and and how is it going to work? Is it going to be free? Is it going to be? Um, are there going to be loot boxes? Are you going to? Um, have well, to I pay could think about you know also the new California privacy statute is affecting how and and the European GDPR is affecting how data is being processed. So what used to be free and make money before. Uh, I don't, you know, may not work if it's based on a model that, that monetizes personal data mm -hmm. as the law understands that term to, me, to mean. So that would be something else to consider in the equation. Well, certainly, and that's why I mentioned mobile games, because mobile games typically um, are often driven by advertising revenue, um, which means you, you, you could be sharing information with those advertisers. You could have... Um, children using those mobile games and so that that opens up a, a, an issue as an investor you need to, to thoroughly analyze and and with respect to the monetization model um, this raises an issue that we could probably do an entire episode about which is the change from making one complete game that fits in a box and shooting it out in the world versus the new games as a service model that we're seeing really taking over where uh, people are now expecting almost games to ship in a, you know, unfinished, nearly finished state, and then expecting them to support that game over the next one, two, three, four years. Right. You buy season passes. Right. Yeah, you buy season passes. You get uh, all sorts of additional content that really changes the model that we're used to seeing. You know, it used to be they would sell you a cartridge, and, and the developer got all the money they're ever going to get from you from that cartridge, unless you break it and have to buy a new one. But now, you know, they... they a lot of a lot of games uh, ship with you know a, a certain purchase price with the full expectation that you're going to be spending money either on microtransactions in the game, loot boxes, for example, or additional content drips. And they also expect the game to be supported. And so, if your business model you know is based on or you're or you're investing and you're expecting them to ship a product and be done with it you're going to be pretty disappointed to find out that, no, they ship the product and then they have to keep supporting it, uh, you know, monthly patches, whatever, uh, with new content going forward. There is a delicate balance there as well. As I think it was Battlefront 2 where they uh, 
and I might be mistaken. You tell me if if I'm right or nope. wrong. But they, they think you're right. Yeah, they they you know created a situation where you had to play several hundred hours of, uh, to to get to main characters that you assumed you would have day one, um, and it created such a backlash. Um, I think uh, the most downvotes ever on Reddit that they uh, they ended up changing it. Um, so title holder. As an investor, you need to to look at what what those plans are. And, and look, initially, a game is is like you know, like a movie production, right? It's, you've got talent, you've got um, people writing a story, depending on the type of game it is, you need, you're, you're worried about IP rights, you're worried about who's going to distribute your game. There, there's a whole host of things uh, to worry about. And then in addition, you add, um, in addition to distribution, it's it's on what platform and, and how are you upgrading the technology? You don't just, you know, you just, when you're done with the movie, you're done with the movie. You're almost never done with the game, right? right. So um, there's considerable revenue that can continue to come in but also uh, work that's required yeah and we didn't even on the issue of what platform you got to think about what generation right because now they're rolling over you know there's a new playstation every five or six years now and it would be a shame to spend a bunch of money and time building a game only to have it ready to ship right as the new generation's coming out and makes your game probably obsolete or whichever one you invested in yeah, no, I know that they definitely, that's something to consider for sure, how it's going to be uh, played, uh, what platform, what device. And also I was going to mention um, uh, who, who's the audience, what's the target. And if you're going to be targeting kids, that invites a whole nother, um, you know, ball of wax with COPA, the Child's Children's Online Protection, Privacy Protection Act, sorry, I almost butchered that, uh, where it requires uh, consent and, and depending on who you're targeting, what age group, and so th- there's a lot there, um, and also maintaining a reasonable security practice, which all companies these days should be doing, uh, but it, it, it does, it, any one of these decisions invites a whole other host of other questions that need to be asked and looked at, both from a legal and a practical investment context as well. There's a significant IP component in these that, that needs to be understood um, just because there's, and it's not just necessarily patents or trademarks, but it's it's ownership of rights and it's the ability to put yourself on these platforms and, and who owns um, what's been developed. So um, Very cool. Well, I don't have any more questions unless you do. Adam, maybe what games are you, have you been playing recently? I, I, can't, I can't confess you... here to playing any <laughs> games, Steve. <laughs> All right, there you go. Uh, no games from Adam. He pleads the fifth. Nick, do uh, you have any more questions? It sounds like he's playing Fortnite to me. Yeah, probably. I think so. Apex Legends. He looks like an Apex kind of guy. So <laughs> the, the, the takeaway here is you really got to think it through and know what you're getting into. Uh, we know that the industry is blowing up and it's only going to get bigger as it goes. And that only invites more investment, but it also invites more complexity, more possible PR issues, more possible legal issues. And so it's more important now than ever to really think about, you know, what niche to get into and how specifically you're looking to get into this. Because, uh, like we said, the the decision points just multiply, uh, as, as particularly as more time goes on. Wise words, Nick Brown. It's first time for everything. <laughs> All right, everybody. That's today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And a special thanks to Adam Smith for joining us today. Yes, thanks, Adam. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Until next time, game on. Game on. You've been listening to the Land Party Lawyers podcast series with Steve Blickensturfer and Nick Brown. To learn more about our e-gaming and e-sports practice, visit carltonfields.com.
This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.